What is going on, you guys? Welcome to the Strong Life Podcast. Today's podcast, and probably every day's podcast, is brought to you by my very own app. It's the Strong Life app. I cannot say enough about this app. I do all the workout programming. These are all workouts I've done and tested and done for myself over the years for a variety of reasons. I have Train Like Kendra. I have five days of dumbbells at home, body weight, beginner body weight, three days of training. I have sprint intervals in there, hit workouts, and we're about to do a 12 days of Christmas giveaway. So if you download the app between today and December 1st, you are qualified for the giveaway. And I'm super, super excited about that. I have 12 gifts to give away. I'm going to do the workouts live. They're only 15 minutes. So listen, get in there. Stop overthinking it. Okay. It's me. I do all the workouts. You can see me. It can even feel like you're working out with me. So that's one for fitness. The second thing is, this is all in the show notes. I do advise people through the first form nutrition app. It's the best nutrition app on the market. I have somebody who helps me. You can track your food, just like you do in any other app out there. You can track your food, exercise, water, supplementation, submit weekly assessments, and you can get some feedback. And then of course, we're always there just to answer questions. So we all know that a great physique and overall health is both fitness and nutrition. And of course, the third thing is join my Facebook community where that's where my people are, man. I know it's Facebook. I get it. I don't like it either, but my group is quality. If I wasn't the leader of the group, and put that community together four years ago now, I would still be in it. That's how highly I think of the people in there. It's just a positive place to be, but not annoyingly positive, just like just the right amount. Um, so those are the three ways to access me. We have fitness, nutrition, and community. And those are all important parts of what it's going to take for you to build this lifestyle, get new ideas for setting goals, change, and stay consistent over the years. So age well with me. Let's do it together. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to let Dr. Heidi Wells into the meeting. Hello, Heidi. And then we're going to go live in our Facebook group that I just talked about in the intro. How are you, Heidi? Okay. Hey, I'm going to take us live in Team Strong Life now. So everyone has yes. been dying. You think I was torturing these people by scheduling you and then moving you? It's so oh, evil. It's evil business. Just building up the. I know. (laughs) Just reminding them that we can do whatever we want, I guess. But thank you for being flexible. I'm really excited about this talk because this talk that you gave us, and, uh, you know, ultimately the dialogue that you and I had was really cool because it was just a different way for people to look at BMI. And we never got this out to a live podcast. I know we talked about it a lot. So I'm going to just dive in and give you a teeny tiny intro. Dr. Heidi Wells, she is a a sports nutrition and family doctor. I'll let her dive into that too. But the one thing I want you to know about- sports nutrition, just sports medicine. Sports medicine, sorry. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And she will do more of an intro and background, but she is one of our coaches in Team Strong Life and does the live workouts once a week has for several years now. And it's just, it's fun. So if you, you see her here and you get to hear her and you like her wait till she takes you through a workout. So today we're going to be talking about uh, body mass index BMI, which is that 
puts people in that obesity range label, which is probably really important to get out of, but also there could be different ways of looking at it. And we're going to talk about from your perspective, what you, how you see that, and then probably what people can do to, you know, take some responsibility and control over their own life, given what physicians have available with the time and resources they have. But Without further ado, here's Heidi. And if you're live in Team Strong Life, please feel free to interact, drop questions. This is for you guys. Um, and we're also recording for the Strong Life podcast. So hi, Heidi. Hi. Yeah. So like Kendra said, I'm a sports medicine physician and I'm also family medicine trained. And I think one of my passions is movement and it always has been. And uh, so I think it's no coincidence that I ended up in a career where Kendra, I think you and I do different things, but there's an underlying theme that's similar. Like I think of what I do is sort of empowering people to move their bodies and keeping them moving pain-free. And I, I think that body mass index uh, and how we're going to talk about it today, maybe we'll like ruffle some feathers. I don't know. It's a, <laughs> I think some people might be shocked to see, hear what I have to say as a doctor about what I think about body mass index. Obviously, maybe it helps to define what body mass index is for everyone. So it's your body mass in kilograms divided by your height in meters squared. Um, and it was actually developed by a Belgian mathematician and sociologist in the mid 19th century. And it was never by him intended as a means of medical assessment. It was actually, he was interested in the study of the average or ideal man. <laughs> and so this was a component of his study in a way to discover what that really socially, socially ideal man was. And maybe a decade later, his research and data was picked up by a pioneer of the eugenics movement in a, as a way to um, sort of exclude a pool of people or groups deemed to be inferior and promote people that were superior. Um, so, and I think actually kind of interesting to you now that you're doing a lot of research, BMI, that data in the mid 19th century is exclusively male data for BMI, no women. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting. I'm not, it's not referred to a lot in the literature I'm finding, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so modern BMI was really first popularized by a physiologist in the 1970s, kind of in reaction to life insurance companies that had all these different ways of calculating or estimating fairly estimating sort of body fat as a way to extrapolate that to risk of death. And so he was trying to, I think he kind of walked upon this data and said, oh, this might be a good way to measure that or estimate it better. And it turns out that body mass index is an okay tool for population research. You know, across large groups, a higher BMI is associated with increased risk of heart disease, type two diabetes, and some cancers. But I think there is a big difference between correlation and causation, which I'm sure as you're learning to read papers, Kendra, that that is important not to assume that just because you see a relationship that it's causal. Mm. So that doesn't mean that a high BMA, BMI causes those things, but there is an association. So there could be a third factor in there, which I'll argue there probably is, at least in part. And then very low and very high body mass indexes are associated with greater risk of dying sooner. So I think important to say that also those very low BMIs are a problem. And so 
when we talk about all cause mortality. So normal and overweight categories of body mass index are a lower mortality risk. But when we apply this to the individual, it's actually not as good of a tool and it's not a good way necessarily to estimate metabolic health, which I think is what most of us care about. Like what's my risk of dying from all causes or developing chronic disease or you know, am I gonna be able to get on the ground with my grandkids? <laughs> Those are the things we care about, not really the number on the scale, except to the extent we think the number on the scale matters for those things. Right, so uh, you have a couple things at play. Yeah. One, and thank you for the history too. Yeah. It's like always some man a million years ago, you know? <laughs> and then we just like <laughs> never occurred to us to like update the process. <laughs> yeah. And actually- I did learn from Dr. Stacy Sims, and now that I'm reading research more to really find out who who the the uh, subjects are, Wh whether it's cold plunge data, you know, sa sauna data, like it's really important yeah, that like you how ask old who, the people, yeah, who is yeah. that? Was that all men? Because it's right. you know body temperatures run differently. So those are that's been really exciting here. But you did mention something else. And I think when we did this talk last time, we we got to that part where Heidi kind of uncovered, okay, so there's, we have to look at large populations of data and we could say, you know, certain diseases are associated with a higher BMI. And like, there's, I think everybody would be like, yes, we agree. You know, there's, it's not like those, that data is true where we, it feel it would be, you know, um, certain body types, certain training styles, certain athletic builds able to both run a marathon and be obese at the same time and being told and feel like you're unhealthy when really you've always said, you know, you can be metabolically healthy with a obese BMI, but Yes, you you may not feel your best. You may not look like you want to look, but not to just completely get on the scale or walk out of a doctor's office hopeless about your abilities. So I think we'll leave you feeling a little surprised today. Yeah, and I think the twist for me that I think I want everyone to take home is actually that the focus on BMI sometimes does more harm than good. I think it leads to discrimination in healthcare against people in larger bodies. I had actually an interaction in my residency in my training for family medicine where I had a woman, actually probably she could be someone in TSL. She was probably in her mid forties by her BMI. She had obesity. I think she was relatively active. She hadn't seen a doctor in like five years. Maybe she was over 50 because I think she was due for some cancer screening. So at that point she was due for a mammogram and she had not come to the doctor because every time she comes to the doctor, she gets on a scale. If she's there for a runny nose, the doctor tells her she needs to lose weight. And mm. I think we as physicians like do harm with that message. I saw someone who has an eating disorder. <laughs> She needs to eat more, but her cholesterol was elevated. She's 20 years old and her, uh, is a nurse practitioner told her that she needed to cut back on carbs. Oh gosh. <laughs> like, Mind blowing, right? Like actually people that are anorexic right. and under eating have elevations in cholesterol. So right. high cholesterol can happen 
when you're underfueled and when you're overfueled. So this idea in our culture that smaller is better is so misconstrued. BMI is easy to measure and it's cheap. But I think that, and I, I think evidence and medicine supports this. It's just harder to measure, but physical inactivity. So being sedentary is a greater risk factor for all cause mortality, meaning dying from every cause. Physical inactivity is a greater risk factor than smoking and obesity combined. <laughs> like, yeah, it's funny. I was, I, there's a, there's like a meme out there or some, something where it's like, you know, it, it's better for you to be in a larger body and go resistance train heavy three days a week than your sort of skinny, fat, sedentary friend who at the very short term might feel like they look better to you, but not necessarily, you know, to your point, like that's just, that's just what you see on the outside, which at some point doesn't matter anyway, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. When you think about um, like, <laughs> you know, how I want to see myself when I'm a grandparent is being able to move and have a quality of life, like be active and bone health is so important to that. So like, if you're, you know, have osteoporosis and you fall and break a hip, like the coming back from that, that can mean that like, you can't go home. You've got to go to a rehab facility. And I mean, a hospitalization when you're frail and small is much more detrimental than someone that has a little more body mass, honestly. And then I think, think about what mass is when we talk about bodies, it's, you know, it's more than adipose tissue. And then there's different kinds of adipose tissue. We know that visceral fat is more toxic than the subcutaneous fat and BMI doesn't take into account any right. of that. So visceral fat for people who don't know is the fat around your organs that is the most dangerous. And then subcutaneous is the one that everybody's obsessed with. That's what's under your skin. So you can identify the visceral fat through different means though, correct? I think you can estimate it. I mean, truthfully, a DEXA scan is probably as good as you get yeah. in quantifying that, but most people honestly don't have access to a DEXA scan. And even if you're someone that you're like, oh, I had a DEXA scan. Like when you go get one for screening for osteoporosis as a woman over the age of 65, so that's recommended as part of preventative care, it's not gonna tell you body fat percentage. It's just giving you your bone mineral density. So the DEXA scan that you go to for your doctor can estimate that, but that's not reported conventionally. And truthfully speaking as a doctor, when I've ordered a DEXA scan, I've never asked for that piece of information. I'm not sure I could get it if I wanted it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can get, there's a lot of places popping up in major cities uh, yeah. that are like DEXA facilities for like 80 bucks. You can go have it done. The question is always then what, you know, what do you do with it? How do you interpret it? Right. Unless there's a program or somebody's asked you for it. It's, you know, I, people send them to me all the time, DM with a picture. And it's like, <laughs> is this good? Is this bad? You know? And it's like, well, that's a big, <laughs> that's an unanswerable question, yeah. you know, totally unanswerable. Yeah. It's also a data that's a point in time. So you could take someone that's 300 pounds and they do a very low calorie diet, rapid weight loss. This is not something I know that you, Kendra, would coach people into, but they can have all the same detrimental metabolic effects as someone in a smaller body 
that likewise does a very low calorie diet and is anorexic um, or has an eating disorder, you can have an eating disorder in a larger body with these same metabolic effects. So it's going to impact your hormones. It's going to impact subsequently your bone health. It can throw off your thyroid. It can cause GI distress. So you slow down gut motility. You've got constipation, you've got bloating. <laughs> so you know, you could look at someone in that case and their DEXA scan, you'd say, oh, like their body fat is like unhealthy range, but the, like that they need to lose weight, but actually they're doing it the wrong way and they're metabolically unhealthy for a different reason. <laughs> right, right. Interesting. Dr. Campbell here, my mentor and one of my professors is doing a ton of rapid weight loss studies, rapid, rapid weight loss, which are mirroring a lot of the diets out there right now, particularly. And then what like, what like ultimately happen to people who are on some of the more popular diet medica medication and mm -hmm. the, so it'll be really interesting. He, he, yeah. I think he's going to be the leader in rapid weight loss. It's highly undesirable to achieve. It's like two to three weeks of basically no calories you know, minimal. And so it, it'd be interesting to see what happens yeah. with those? Um, I mean, even with a within a day calorie deficit. So there was some research recently that came out of, um, I think Boston Children's and work Kate Ackerman's doing um, as part of, they have a, like a female athlete center. Um, and the research looked at carbohydrate intake specifically. It's one of the first studies that I think has looked at more macro breakdown and carbohydrates when you're in a calorie deficit, not from like a bodybuilding standpoint, but from bone health standpoint. And they right. demonstrated that people that were meeting their, for the day caloric needs, but they had a period in their day where they were low carbohydrates around their exercise, mm. that there were actually increased markers of bone turnover, suggesting that even if you're getting enough in your day, that you could have a higher risk of stress injury, lower bone mineral density from just that not getting carbohydrates around your workout, which I think right. is fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it, it, you know, once you start fueling and lifting heavy, it's, it's very difficult to go into workouts, not fueled. I yeah. mean, this is a side note from BMI, but you, yeah. you really feel the, your body start to just, just tank. And when you yeah. you're doing that, I mean, you're having to reach into some essentials there, uh, you know, to get what you need to power through the workout. And I, gosh, I think of all the years of just like, I, and I knew the basics in my twenties with protein and post-workout, but you know, man, it's so it's, uh, that's so important. Yeah. I think we should be focusing more on how we feel and that we're mm. physically active. I think the focus on BMI categories has not improve long-term health outcomes. And like I said, I think it's probably more likely contributed to weight related discrimination and potential harms, whether we're like, well, that's a good point. Like, or... yeah, it's a good point. We're looking at the data, but we're not getting healthier. No, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking that about the whoop tracker, the Apple mm -hmm. watches, all the things it's almost like the analysis paralysis. People still say to me, I don't know where to start. And it's like, what I understand that, but at the same time, it's like, it is information overload. I'm the last person in the world to like, try to help people make excuses, but I do, I can understand how it, it can feel like that, but it's not, I don't even think food trackers in themselves are helping people. I mean, I, I have people who are like, still come into the app 
with quite a bit of weight to lose to get themselves into a healthier body, not exercising, having had tracked their food for 15 years in my fitness pal. It's like, it is not helping. It should be a tool to progress you forward, maybe mm-hmm. some accountability, but it's just, we're just over tracked in, in yeah. my opinion, you know? Yeah. And I think like, I, I think that our public health crisis is not obesity. I think we're under muscled. I think we're overly sedentary. If you think about even just how the environment has changed, like since I grew up, like I, you know, how far did I, I lived in a more rural place, but I, you know, walked a quarter mile to the bus stop. I just like different, you know, how much more do we depend on cars? I was listening to some data recently on um, kids biking to school and the percentage that used to bike to school 10 years ago and the percentage that now ride by private vehicle. And it's much less that bike or walk. And, and so I think it's not our, this country, our metabolic health is not just on the individual. I think it also, you know, part of the the blame, if it's going to be blame also is on our environment, you know, to some extent we have, yes, we have agency. I can make decisions. I can make healthy choices, but I think also our environment shapes our health too. The quality of the food in our food system. Yeah. I mean, you know, Dr. Lyons, Dr. Gabrielle Lyons always referred, has recently been out talking about being under muscled and I think that's a really interesting concept. I also am in one of my classes. I think there's like, it seems like there is a, there is this idea that just like more muscle, more muscle, but at some point we all start to deteriorate and muscle is metabolically demanding also. So it's kind of this funny when you kind of think about it from that perspective, like from a, just a you know, a body that survives the longest probably isn't the most muscular with the highest metabolism. In fact, I think higher metabolisms have their own set of problems, right? Your heart only has so many beats it can survive. So you, you need this nice overmuscled heart causes heart failure. Right. But you, but like to have a balance of a general fitness Mm -hmm. lifestyle it doesn't have to look like mine or like yours. You don't have to be a crazy fitness enthusiast, but generally being active, focusing yeah. on obviously resistance training for muscle and overall metabolic yeah. improvements is like, it's, it's like, it's not even like becoming somebody at uh, the mind pump guys were like, it's becoming the you know, the, the way of the future, I'm like, no, it is, it has been, it's not becoming, it's like, you, you've got to get on that train, you know? Yeah. And I think like anything it's, we always take everything to extremes, right? Extremes. If, if muscle is good, more muscle yeah. you can get is the best, like, no, right. right. <laughs> no, it's like kind of like common sense that that's not true. Too little right. is not good. Too much is not good. But it's I like think from a per- physique perspective, like Everybody, like I have people who are like, I want Heidi's glutes. I'm like, well, I can tell you Heidi has had those glutes since she was four. I know it. She said it. She had those in high school. Those glutes are like built by the good Lord above, created by the creator himself or herself, whatever your thing is. Like there's a body type. I think we all intuitively know this. Bodies come in different shapes and sizes. And so another tool, sometimes people like to use to measure like a cheap, convenient way to measure adiposity or body fat, or as a surrogate measure, particularly in studies, is waist circumference. 
which some people actually argue is better. I can see how it makes sense that maybe it's a little better, right? Because you're getting at maybe that visceral or belly fat that's more thought to be toxic. But I can just tell you, like, I know women that have no waist and women that have a like very hourglass figure or a longer torso, and they could have very different body fat percentages and it doesn't correlate with their weight, their waist circumference when you compare it across like individual to individuals. There's no one number someone can give me to tell me that's healthy. <laughs> okay. So what you're saying is, and I mean, I see bodies yeah. every day. Yeah. Like that's, you know, I see a body that's 140 pounds that looks completely different than another body that's 140 pounds. Mm-hmm. So when somebody's like, what's a healthy weight for me? It's like, girl, you just got to start the process and that will reveal itself. Like it's, everyone is so different. How you respond to resistance training, your, you know, ability to put on muscle and maintain it. This is like, this is not, it is another unanswerable question. So you're saying, let's say we have somebody who is 26% body fat, and this is the same size as somebody who is 20 or 35% body fat. Can you just say, well, what's, what is the healthy BMI again? Can you give us the ranges? Yeah. Or what so, are they as they are and how do you see them? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the categories that we're going to find is a, a quote, normal body mass index is 18.5 to 24.9 and then 25 to 29.9 is considered overweight and obesity is a BMI of 30 or greater. And so low BMI is below that 18.4. And so it's interesting. They actually like obesity as a category of BMI, I think was not defined until like 1997 by the WHO and some like expert panel. Yeah. In 1997. And It was really, I think, pushed by popularization of weight loss drugs in the 1990s and trying to get them reimbursed by insurance. But in that like expert panel that comes out with this report that was then later these BMI categories get adopted, they actually said that the category cutoff points are largely arbitrary. Like there's nothing, they don't actually, there's no agreement for body fat cutoffs for, you know, fat mass or body fat percentage that actually like constitute obesity. And then there's no way to translate it to BMI. Like we just don't have agreed upon cutoffs that are based in medicine. They're kind of arbitrary, just based on population data. Well, and it's interesting because I'll see somebody who gets back their data and they're at like 29%. And I'm like, I know that feels like a punch in the gut, but even for me, like having seen such a wide variety, I just don't know that anybody should be. Oh, it shouldn't feel like a taking, punch in the gut. Like yeah, it should be taking that heart. as like a, as, as Bible and running with it. Yeah, I that's think, my heart because yeah. I bet you, Kendra, that same person is consistent. With yeah, their active, super active. Yeah. So when I yeah. think of measuring yeah. metabolic health, like personally, when I see people in the office as a doctor about this, one of the first things I tell them is that body mass index isn't a great predictor. So 30% of people predictor of what health health or their risk of dying from all causes. So 30% of people with obesity are actually metabolically healthy. When we look at holistically, 
things like their blood pressure control, their blood glucose control, their cholesterol, their liver enzymes. And you think, okay, well, it's a screening tool. Like I sort of thought this myself, like if it's a screening tool, that means you want it to be very sensitive, meaning that you want it to catch everyone that's at risk and knowing you might catch some people that aren't at risk. Like, okay, great. But in fact, using body mass index is a bad screening test because it misses a whole bunch of people with normal BMI that are at risk. So you're, Um, you're saying on the one hand, sure. It can be a good uh, indicator, as we've said, like big numbers, big statistical types of information. But if you only say people at 30% are unhealthy, but people at 24% are healthy, you have grossly misused this data. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's like not a good screening tool. Right. <laughs> it's not a good di- diagnostic text when applied to the individual. And I think there was... um data on people with type two diabetes and they kind of broke them down into different groups of like cardiorespiratory fitness and then stratified them by BMI. So basically you take a bunch of people that have type two diabetes and some of them are, and they use VO2 max, I think to measure it. So they actually got an objective measure of fitness that's rather than just self-reported. Can you Um, tell everybody what VO2 max is? Yeah. So it's a way to measure sort of your aerobic capacity. So the more fit you are, your VO2 max is higher. Um, So they, you know, basically said that they were like low physical activity, moderate or high. And what they showed was the people with obesity that were physically active had a lower risk of dying from all causes than the people with normal BMI that were inactive. So basically saying that being physically active is protective of dying of all causes, regardless of your body fat (laughs) or your size. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually you've heard probably Dr. Chad too. He says that a lot. I see it a lot. I have a lot of women who still fall in the obese category that can lift really heavy weights, working on pull-ups, do all the workouts super strong. It's just, it's just such, it it bums me out so much that somebody would give up because the, or or throw it all away because they struggle with food, which is a whole other part of the, of this issue. Right. Like how many people, how many people start on a journey to like make lifestyle changes Mm -hmm. and they don't see the scale move. So they're like, screw it. I'm like, not getting to eat the things I like. It's not working. I'm not losing weight. Scale's not moving. Right. <laughs> when in right. fact, like it is working in ways that you might not be able to see. Um, but, you know, just by, you know, I think also interesting if we talk about like physical activity as, as medicines, there's guidelines out there, I think came out in 2018. So the recommended activity level is 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity a week, plus two days of resistance training. That's like what you, they recommend for like healthy Americans. It's a pretty low bar when you talk to folks like you and I, Kendra, it's like, okay, that's doable. That's 30 yeah. minutes days a week yeah. with two days of resistance training. That's right. doable for many people. But so people that meet that guideline have a 30, 36% reduction in mortality from all causes. Literally no drug out there comes even do, yeah. close to that. 
And like thinking about right now, like Wagovi and Ozempic and all of those things, what they're quoting from that study that just came out is that there's a 20% reduction in cardiovascular events. And so that's, that's a huge number. And I actually don't know whether that's relative risk or absolute risk, but there's a reduction, but still like that's not even touching physical activity. And we're talking about those drugs with potential long-term side effects and physical activity. Like what are the side effects? Maybe some muscle soreness, some injury, some like transient dehydration, <laughs> you know, some discomfort. Are you seeing a lot of people on those medicines? I have a lot of people asking for them. Honestly, I think they're more popular in the like Instagram, TikTok arena. Um, and because I'm mostly practicing sports medicine, um, I'm doing a little bit of primary care. I'm not seeing as much of it, right. but it's there. I mean, right. I think. What, and I think, what, yeah, ahead. I would say, I mean, I think there is a place for drugs that help with that. I just don't think it's the answer. And I think the focus on weight is, is, holding people back. Like, I just think we're missing the point. Like we should be focusing on being more active and yes. less on the scale, but right. it's hard to measure that, right? Like when you come into the doctor's office, okay, how many minutes do you exercise per week? At what intensity are you resistance training? Well, what does resistance training mean? Does that mean they're doing bar with three pound weights or are they going to the gym and, you know, squatting 200 pounds, <laughs> very different. So it's hard I think in medicine and in research to quantify those things in a way that we can prove that they make a difference. So if you have, if you have a patient who is falls into an obese range or uh, even a, a body, you know, composition or BMI that feels concerning to you and it is appears to be concerning hmm. to you and they're not active. What is, what is the, like, how do you address that? Cause I don't know that yeah. you hear a lot of people and even with physician friends, it's difficult for them from a pure time mm -hmm. perspective, yeah. like literally just time to be able to dig into, you know, and provide like meaningful protocols for people who, you know? I think I never tell someone based on the BMI or the weight that pops up on their chart that they have to lose weight because I have no freaking clue where that comes from. I mean, unless I can see a graph of what their weight's been their whole life and their BMI's been their whole life. But what about the person that's just lost 30 pounds and you're, you're, they're like, hello, I like, I'm doing the work. So I think it can be insulting to people, quite frankly, to, tell them they need to lose weight until you gather more information. So I think my job as a physician is like, Hey, a lot of times I'll say I'm required to sort of tell you this at your physical, you know, we measure this body mass index. It sometimes correlates with being at risk. Let's talk about some other things so I can get a better sense. If I think you're a person that might be at risk. So what's your physical activity level? Like what's your eating lifestyle? Like, like what's your nutrition? Like, um, and then look at some other markers. So how's your blood pressure today? Do you ever measure it at home? You know, what's your cholesterol levels been like? Have you ever had them checked? If not, let's check them um, just to give us a better picture. And usually I want to focus on those lifestyle things. And you're right. It's a really hard thing to address with people in a medical system that pushes high volume, like see more patients in less time. It 
makes it difficult for providers that really care and want to help to counsel people <laughs> in, in the right ways. And behavior change, I don't care how good I am at motivational interviewing. What I've learned from watching you, Kendra, is as a physician, seeing someone, maybe even if I see them as frequently as once a month, I mean, I rarely see anyone that often. And I think most primary care doctors don't see patients, a single patient that often. How can I help support behavior change? That doesn't happen from seeing your doctor once a year. That's unfortunately, as much as I want it to be me, as much as I want to help people, I, I can't. It takes people like you, Kendra, that are coaching people and having weekly check-ins because all it takes is like one day of seeing that scale go up. And all of a sudden, even yeah. though they know what we're talking about, that like the, the healthy habits matter more than the number on the scale, they still see that number on the scale and they're like, screw it. I just have a slow metabolism. It's menopause. It's whatever. Like I can't do this. I might as well. So I'm not doing anything. I wonder too, I've had a couple clients who have used their blood work as their ultimate goal. So they are not in a healthy body and are overweight, get the blood work done. Mm -hmm. And they, through their own accountability and desire for improvements in collaboration with their doctor, went Mm -hmm. back in three months to see if it improved through a better diet and exercise with me. And it did. And then we just year over year, it was like a woman in her fifties without having made major body composition changes was a completely different person from the inside out. Mm -hmm. But that and was like, that was, yeah, that was that like her doctor saying, I want you to go do this and I want to see you. And so she would come back for the blood work and that was very motivating. And I think mm-hmm. even though, you know, she struggled to get into the physical body that she had visualized for herself, she learned that the work and being able to be around and be healthy using her own behavior change was insane and incredible. You know, she avoided lots of medication and just, so I think it can be done. You know, I I mean, I've seen it repeatedly. I mean, you have worked with so many people, Kendra, you actually can see some of these differences that it's like, you are healthier, even if you haven't had this dramatic physical transformation that we see on the outside. And I think that's what I want people to take away from this is that set the boundaries around those healthy habits. And like the scale is a piece of information, right? Like I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but don't let it hold so much weight. (laughs) No pun intended. That's my favorite to say that on the scale. And I think everyone, something I struggle with personally, like I, I think truly my goals are about health and longevity but at the same time, I want to feel comfortable in my skin. And is it vain or selfish to have care about how I look? No, I think the answer is no. I think you can care about both things. I think everyone deserves to feel comfortable in their skin. But that doesn't necessarily, like most people, if you ask them, if you think about your smallest body, is that actually the time that you felt the best in your life? I know for me, it's not. Yeah, like, no, my, my neighbor and I were just talking about that. She's like trying to come up with a goal weight 
Yeah. And she's like remembering, but when she was at that weight, she was like miserable. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. we all have that. Yeah. It was like the worst breakup ever. You were depressed. You were, yeah. you know, yeah. Yeah. I, um, after I graduated college, I took a job on a lobster boat. It was super fun, but I, it was the first time really living on my own outside of college with the budget. And when you lobster you get a percentage of what the boat makes so I didn't really know like I didn't have an hourly wage that I could calculate and so I don't think it was at all from a trying to get smaller I just wasn't eating enough because I was afraid to spend money on groceries I think I was spending $25 a week on groceries and like barely eating and doing this like physical job and I think I was like living in some different places I don't even know if I had a mirror I was you know wearing like clothes that I lobstered in I didn't even know that my clothes didn't fit anymore but I, I mean, I probably Kendra lost like 20 pounds from where I am that I did not have to lose, like coming out as a college athlete, right, and I was right. constipated, I was depressed. I mean, I was eas- bruising easily. Like I think back and I'm like, oh my God, I wasn't anorexic in the way that right. I was intentionally restricting, but I, I was way undernourished. <laughs> sounds like a, sounds like a prep for a bikini show. You were right on track. <laughs> Exactly totally where you should. <laughs> and you start, you know, like I think I was thinking about food all the time. Yes, I was hungry right, all the time. Right. I was preoccupied, even though it wasn't about, right. you know, I was right. <laughs> now it's I change and it's yeah, not, it's healthy. <laughs> so one thing I talk about sometimes, um, and this is for people who are like, I can't lose weight, I my body won't lose weight. None of that is true. It's usually just a matter of staying consistent. And I've read that message so many times that, you know, this won't work. I can't lose weight. I can't get below this certain weight. And I think, I don't think, I'm not sure if I should say this. And I think (laughs) it's almost like there is a, uh, this idea that like obesity is a body type which I don't necessarily think is a good way of thinking about it. That does to me feel a little bit like you've kind of thrown your hands up a little bit. I, I think it's just hard for me as a coach and maybe even you as a doctor to understand what is somebody's vision for themselves mm-hmm. um, in terms of body composition. Is it even achievable for them? Is it attainable? Is it something they could maintain? So I, I feel like this idea that I guess a couple things. One is this idea that I'm just overweight and that's the way it is, is something probably worth discussing or at least having people think about if that's a habit for you to say that. Mm-hmm. Usually what's followed by that is some self-sabotaging behavior mm-hmm. that will in fact prevent you from weight loss. And I, I yeah, see I mean, that I think there's a lot. No denying, there's no denying that there's some genetics, right, at play and other factors that can contribute to what your weight and body type is. I mean, there are many people that have, you know, quote unquote, struggled with weight since they were young. You know, I think there are probably differences <laughs> going down a whole nother rabbit hole. Like, what are differences in the gut microbiome that we don't understand yet that contribute to, you know, how like the gut is your body's second brain how do those factors interplay? But I think, I, I think being really careful if people are setting like a goal weight, cause you're right. No one can predict what that weight is. And, and your body, as you change your habits, changes as you age, yeah. it changes. And what you 
think is the weight might not be the right weight. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't use body mass index as a way to calculate your goal weight. Like I think I've heard people that are like, okay, what, what would give me a body mass index of 25? What weight do I have to be at that height? To right, get there? right, right. But you're basing it on pseudoscience because where right. do those calories come from? They don't correlate well with the rest of kind of markers for metabolic health. So that's not a good way to set an individual goal. I mean, it's way yeah, we, so interesting. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've had people ask me like, do women weigh 140 pounds? I feel like I'm supposed to weigh less. I'm like, yes, yes. Women, like I weigh 140 pounds, like women weigh 140 pounds. Because they're thinking that's too high. It's too big. It's too much. Like that's a big number, you know? And then I have some women who can absolutely kick ass, rip on a mountain bike, uh, lift heavy weights, do anything physical and can seem to not be able to get below 200. It is not because of their bot that their body won't let them. I assure you it is because their habits won't let them. So you have to be really just, just take a look at that. Okay. It's like, I think for that person, it's like, okay, how much do those habits matter? Cause I think all of the things it's like, that is what we, that is the battle. Right. Right. Like, is it worth it? Is it an aesthetic goal or a health goal, right? Because I think for some people, it really is a health goal. And I think those are the people where, okay, my blood pressure is a little bit high and high blood pressure runs in my family and someone died of a heart attack before the age of 50. Okay, whoa, we need to like make sure you're doing the things to live longer, which I would say are consistently moving your body and resistance training. And then screw the scale, what that shows, you know, like, if we see that those other markers are coming down, I'm not, as a physician, I'm not really worried about the scale and individuals shouldn't be either. Right. It's so interesting. Yes. You, you just cannot judge a book by its cover at all. And in this area, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting, especially obviously in, in team strong life, we are surrounded by, I think we're, it's an anomaly here to have so many women over the age of 40 who are doing super physical things, setting goals, working out every day. Like this is not your typical <laughs> group mm-hmm. of women. So when any one of us walks into a doctor's office and get on get on the scale and like, it's like weight loss shouldn't be the topic of conversation or BMI, knowing right. that she just ran a half marathon and, yeah. you know, is you know, lifting weights heavy three days a week. So I do think we need to stick together a little bit and take some, you know, just take, be a little more, bit more confident with what we've built when we head in to get our (laughs) annual review and walk Mm. out feeling like I just have to be a smaller person. I just have to be smaller, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I mean, it's devastating to think that someone that is in the best shape of their life Mm. and, you know, just ran a half marathon or just did a strongman competition or whatever they did, walk into a doctor's office. Maybe it's a new doctor because, you know, your doctors change all the time, right? Um, (laughs) And they have never met them before and see a number on a scale and make an assumption or make a, what feels probably like a judgment, even if that's not what the person on the other side intends. They're just like, you know, looking at their screen and like, oh, that's a, puts you in this category. But um, how devastating to think that they might be told that like, you're really, you know, unhealthy, <laughs> essentially get that message. I don't think the physician would say that, but right. Like, so actually, our- only the 1%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you don't know me. You don't know my <laughs> crew. But but so okay, in the last couple of minutes here, how can somebody assess their health, Heidi? Like, is mm. it just I do all the things, I feel pretty happy, I sleep well? Can we be more in touch with just like how we experience the world? Or are there things you would recommend? that might help people. I get my blood panel done. And then yeah. I set a goal for myself where I go back in six weeks or six months or, and see what's changed. Yeah. What so I, think of, yeah. Do? I think of kind of like four pillars of foundational health being like nutrition and physical activity, sleep and how you manage stress. So I think mm. that's another thing we sometimes forget about people's mental health or behavioral health, how that contributes. So kind of looking honestly at how you're doing in all four of those areas and then from there, maybe having a conversation with your doctor, you know, say you are someone that falls into a BMI category that's overweight or obese saying, Hey, should I, I want to know if I should be concerned about this. I'd love if you would check my cholesterol, my liver enzymes, check a hemoglobin A1C, which is a way to look at your average blood sugar over a period of three months, check some of these things. And, and then let's have a conversation about you know, check my blood pressure if I didn't say that. So I think like blood pressure, cholesterol, liver enzymes, and hemoglobin A1C and see what those things show. And then say you're someone that's actually doing well in all four of those, you know, you're doing pretty good with your nutrition, you're moving your body, you're meeting the physical activity guidelines, you're, you know, getting seven or eight hours of sleep, you're not, you're managing your stress well, and you're still having some of those things that are elevated, then I think the question is like, you know, what levers can we still pull? And we probably do need to change something, whether that's increasing activity or addressing food quality. And it might be quality more than quantity, as you know. And, and then if you're still stuck in a position where you can't make those changes, and honestly, I think it, behavior change is really hard, then it's maybe, you know, talking about medications, um, whether that's medications targeted at your specific metabolic problem, whether that's your blood pressure, diabetes, or, you know, talking about medications like that are for weight loss. Yep. Yep. So it doesn't, no shame there, you know, things don't yeah. need to be off the table, but I think in my experience also, I can tell you guys, if you stick with yeah. there, the, the problem I have is that any one of those things, whether you do a medication you're mm -hmm. still going to have to change your lifestyle. So like, 100%. so it's, it's never going to be excluded from the conversation yeah. of getting into a healthier, stronger body as you age. Yeah. And it shouldn't yeah. be. Yeah. I think insulin is a really good example of that, which is obviously a life-saving drug for type mm -hmm. one diabetics and for some type two diabetics, but insulin, yes, like we can lower your blood glucose, we can lower your A1C and that will decrease your risk of some of the like microvascular complications, things like, you know, your eyes, your feet, um, like your nerves, but it, it leads to weight gain and other metabolic changes. Like you've kind of, your body has already had this way of telling you like, we can't, we can't do this. Something needs to change. And you're just sort of allowing yourself to keep going on the same way. So there's, you know, in my mind, there's going to be consequences. So yes, we can like, we can fix things with medications or kind of, it's like, sort of like, like a bandaid, like we're stopping the bleeding or like tourniquet, we're stopping the gushing, but it's temporary or, you know, like before you need more medication, if you keep, if you don't make those other lifestyle changes, 
you know, you're marching towards earlier death, I guess, not to be like cryptic. And, but I mean, um, ultimately that's what we're talking about here. Not yeah. just earlier death, but the, if you've ever watched somebody deteriorate and then <sighs> just stay living and it, it's just very, very hard to watch as opposed to somebody who's able to stay as independent for as long as yeah. possible um, and have a little more, you know, confidence about their physical body. Yeah. But, you know, I think this is a really, it's a really good discussion. Is there anything else around BMI that you feel like we didn't address? Um, no, I think, I think the big like take home point or message that I love to get out there is just that physical inactivity is a greater risk factor for all cause mortality than obesity and smoking be combined. And that people that are physically active have a lower risk for dying of all causes than people that have a normal BMI and are physically inactive. So, you know, taking that message home and uh, just realizing that body mass index isn't really based in science at all. It's some aggregate population data from the mid 19th century from a guy who was trying to figure out what the socially ideal man was. <laughs> so if you want to be the socially so ideal man of the 19th yeah. century, set your weight goal well, based here, on yeah. BMI. Actually, that is interesting because I often think, you know, I have women all the time who are like, I want to get rid of this cellulite. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, first of all, there are so many women in TSL who aren't going to get healthier because they got leaner than the leanest. Mm -hmm. they, like getting leaner and leaner and leaner isn't get, you're not getting like healthier and healthier and healthier. Now we're just physique, which is fine. You know, I'm yeah. here for it. You want a yeah. great physique. I will help you get there. Yeah. But this idea that you don't want to have any fat on your body or you don't want to have cellulite. I think it's probably one of the greatest differentiators between a man and a woman is a little bit of cellulite. Mm -hmm. And I, I say, embrace a little bit of the junk. It's yeah. okay. And you know what I mean? Like, don't go through your, don't waste all of these years yeah. hating these little sections of your body when you've done yeah. so much work. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, right. there's yeah. essential body fat. It's required for life. Um, I remember when I got my wedding dress fitting or whatever, I think I went to like a seamstress and she was Brazilian. She was wonderful. Um, and she's like, got the dress on and she's laughing because I think she kind of read me as someone that might be like too self-conscious. It was like pretty form fitting around the waist. And I don't know how she brought it up or said it, but I felt great in the dress and the dress looked great on me. But, you know, I have a little bit of like a round belly in this like tight dress. And she was like, that's what makes you a woman. And I wasn't self-conscious yeah. about it. But I right. that she said, that's what makes you a woman. Right. <laughs> it's funny. It's like, cause it, it sometimes the, the physique of no fat and only muscle is very masculine. That's a, that's a, men can get there much more mm -hmm. easily, but I, I realize where like those of us out there building these physiques with all of the, you know, things we see on social media, which who knows how people get their physiques in the first place, but yeah. it's like, that is a desired look for many people. But trust me when I tell you it's, it's not healthier genetics play a major role and someday I would like somebody to tell me the role of genetics because I think it's probably pretty high so don't get discouraged if you can't just be like absolutely shredded with a bunch of muscle you know what I mean like that's it's not it's not healthier you know we I think still have to maintain it see, like we see them on Instagram or on 
it, there's so much like you can flex for the camera you can set up your lighting like I can probably show you two photos of my stomach 30 seconds apart and one I and look totally yeah in. And when I don't, you know, like it's like, well, listen, oh, I've been to many fitness influencer events. And if there's 50 people there, five of them look like they look online. Okay. Like, yeah. and I trust me when I tell you that they, they, it, yeah. it's like, they know how to pose that everybody, everybody does take that for, you know, however you want. <laughs> but I think a little bit of junk is just fine. So try not to get too jammed up about it. You know, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. So thank you, Heidi. Yeah. I'm sure there'll be lots of comments on this. I see some questions and, and comments in here too. And this will be posted on all of the places where the, the podcast is. And um, yeah, I'm so excited for you. Thank you for having me. And I, um, I love that uh, your podcast is just like making it out there. Although yeah, it's getting, yeah, it's getting the out there. I know. Here. Can't take it back now. I know. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't even possibly keep track of the crazy things I've said over the years. Sometimes I think like, damn, I just hope nothing comes back to haunt me. I don't know what I've said. There's so much out there, yeah. but this yeah. is a good one. And um, if you guys like this, please five stars on all the platforms, share the show. I'll put Dr. Heidi's contact information, Instagram. She's about as active as a normal person should be, which is not <laughs> every day, all day. Yeah. So I, I can appreciate that, but if you want to just follow along, why the hell not? I'm, I'm sure she would be happy to connect. So thank you and happy holidays. Yeah. Happy holidays. Yeah. Bye.